the Headstuff Podcast. This is the Richie O'Donnell episode of the podcast. And um, before we get to the episode, I need to do some begging. Um, we're, uh, we have a Patreon page set up, which I've told you about. Um, and we're, tr- we're hoping to hit our first target, our first goal um, before May, by the end of April. Um, so we need a few more, we're two thirds of the way there, but we need a few more patrons to hit that goal. Um, and if you become a patron, you get all sorts of cool rewards, like maybe a Headstuff t-shirt or a cup. Also, while I have you, I'm I'm always saying, hey, subscribe to us on iTunes and stuff. Uh, and I mean it, do (laughs) subscribe. If you listen to us on, um, on, on the embed on the website or anywhere else, uh, you can click one of the subscribe buttons for, um, iTunes or for if you're on an Android phone or anything like that and uh, that's that's really good for us too. Um, I want to tell you about a couple of articles that are on the website at the moment. Um, we've got a pretty good little website there in headstuff.org and uh, just over the last week or so there's been just some really really great great stuff um, and I've picked out uh, four or five here just to point you uh, in the direction of those ones. Um, first of all, there's uh, Gerard Farley's uh, piece about Victoria Woods, which is is just really really good. Uh, it's called Victoria. You'll find that in the humor section. Then there's Dave Hanratty, our music editor, uh, did an amazing piece on mental health. That's called Ireland's Mental Health Problem and Mine. Dean Van Wyn did um, an excellent article on on Prince on on the sad news. He deals with that in um, as as classy a way as you'd expect from from Dean. Uh, Louise Louise Bruton did an excellent article on TXFM called An, an Ode to TXFM. Um, uh, it's just brilliant. It's about TXFM and how that's closing down and her love of radio. Um, also, the new Head Shorts video is out by our visual editors, Claire, Claire Byrne and Ruth Connolly. And that's with the Irish painter Owen Francis McCormack. Um, and that's that's just really, really good and w- well worth a watch. Watch. Uh, and also the latest episode of No Encore, No Encore episode 5 came out uh, today, earlier on today, so go and have a listen to that once you're finished here. Okay, that's the housekeeping out of the way. Uh, this is uh, in This episode is with uh, Richie O'Donnell, who is the documentary filmmaker who made the award-winning documentary called The Pipe, um, and his latest documentary is called Atlantic. Um, it's all about... Uh, Ireland's kind of fishing resources and also the way we've kind of given away our the rights to oil and gas on the coast, the, the core of oil field and all that stuff. Um, but also looking at it from the point of view of Newfoundland and Norway. Um and it's it's really, really great and he's 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 brilliant he's a brilliant guest, he's well able to talk, uh and he's very knowledgeable on the subject. So um I won't keep you any longer. Uh this is the Richie O'Donnell episode of the Headstuff Podcast. Uh, it's it's great to have you here. Uh, will I call you Richard or Richie? Richie or is fine. Richie. Yeah, yeah, because that's one of the things when you have an Irish name, isn't it? It's like, and and you're making films or something. It's uh, you know your IMDb page. Do you have two or is it Richard? I don't know. Actually, I don't know. The last time I looked, yeah, the yeah. IMDb page. Yeah. I don't think I have one. I think it's one for the film. The there's one, no, there's one there. All right for uh, Richard O'Donnell. Yeah, yeah. O'Donnell. O'Donnell. Richie. Richie, Richie. Yeah, yeah. So you worked a lot with T.G. Cahar and yeah. a lot in the Gale talk. You're you fluent know, so. Irish, are you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it's kind of goes between the two, whichever suits. Right. Did you grow up in uh, Gale talk? No, I grew up in Tipperary. Oh, did my you? My mother is from Northwest Mayo. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, my uncle still lives there. He's a farmer, so I spend a lot of time up there. Okay. Uh, and so were you, were you always, like, were you close to the sea or... Did you, is that something that just happened? Well, growing up in Tipperary, we were surrounded by the mountains. Yeah. You know, surrounded by the Galtees and the, the Cummers and the Knockman Downs. <laughs> and then every summer, because my parents were teachers, we'd go, be packed in the car right. and up to Belmullet. And at that time, it was, it was like a two-day journey. You know, you'd yeah, stop yeah. off in Galway or something for the night. Um, and we'd spend the two months up at my uncle's farm right. on the bog, you know, <laughs> at hay, doing whatever, like, just great crack. Right. Uh, except <laughs> my brother and sister. And... Uh, you just had that kind of freedom to roam, you know. And he's, his land goes right down to the sea, right. down to Broadhaven Bay, where, of course, about 20 years later then, of course, Shell land up with right. this big pipe, you know. So yeah. it was it was kind of mad, like, to to kind of be growing up there during my summers yeah, and then to come back so many years later and the place has just turned into a war zone. Uh, so it was, just, it was just a fluke then that you got into this kind of thing then, this yeah. making these documentaries. I did a I did degree in theoretical physics and... 
Across then I was working Trinity. in Dublin. Yeah, and right. uh, then I was working in Dublin. I was teaching for a year. It was kind of a stopgap, and I did a a night course in film and TV in Griffith. Right. And uh, what was that like? Like a hobby. Uh, it was great. Yeah. It was really interesting. You know, using the cameras and it was very very hands on. Right. And I just start filming stuff and putting little things together and uh, and then all of a sudden I I got little bits and pieces of work and then I started working with this company Loopline. Okay. Uh, in town. And then when I got a chance and I moved to Northwest Mayo, uh, and it's just coincidentally as I was living there, the whole thing kicked off with with, with Shell and the right, car right. gas, and I just started filming that and sending bits back to news, getting paid a few quid, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, and it was only really, I suppose, after a while, kind of realizing that, let's say, what I was seeing on the ground wasn't really being put out uh, properly, or maybe honestly, sometimes through oh, okay. the news media. And that was really how I got into documentaries and through that and through knowing the people in these protests who were opposing mm. this project, knowing them to be decent people, like yeah, yeah. <coughs> like our neighbours or uncles. Or, um, knowing and them and to the be, media was painting them as kind of like thugs or something? Yeah, yeah, as lunatics or you right, know, right, right. kind of a threat to the state. Right. Even being accused of being IRA terrorists and oh, all this kind yeah. of stuff. So it was just that curiosity. Then I just started filming more and more with these people. And over the next three years, I just followed the story that was evolving all the time and sort of coincidentally then or by accident got into uh, making a documentary. So you didn't, you, when you were filming at the start, you didn't realise you were making a documentary? Pretty much, yeah. It was just for, this is for the pipe now. This is, um, yeah, yeah. It, was just, it was just for, I suppose that, well, first of all, it was because I was, I was getting a few quid if I'd send a tape off to, to news, you know, I'd get right. paid a few quid because they wouldn't send the news crew up there, only every now and then. Right, okay. Uh, so if it was a bit of a scuffle, they'd pay for it and I'd put okay. it out in the news. Okay. And of course, the story that was going out then was the more sensationalist, you know, these boggers fighting against the guards mm-hmm. as as opposed to what the real story was, was, you know, a community. Yeah. A very peace-loving community that was being railroaded over by this big aggressive multinational and the state were just turning their backs on these people and you know allowing the the security forces to deal with it right as a law and order issue but yeah. the real issues of health and safety of community of the r- constitutional rights of people of farmers over their land mm. was was you know it was kind of taken over by let's say those protests outside the refinery yeah. uh, and i wanted to look at what was underneath that because on the ground you could see there was a much bigger story to this much bigger injustice and much more complexity, you know. So that's what I followed over the next few years. And it was just just fascinating, you know, because there's so many different elements within the community, so many local politics, you know. Mm. Uh, a, a lot of kind of arguments over, you know, opposing Shell or not, or people have different uh, approaches towards opposing Shell, be it through the courts or actually trying to take them on, you yeah. know, take them on physically, right. take on the guards. And other people brought their own agenda and their own baggage. Right. So... It was just a really complex story that I just, I was just fascinated me, you know, because because it, it's it's so so hard really to be able to tell that story in a short space of time. Mm. So that's why documentary is so important, really, is that it allows you, you know, to go to say an hour and a half, for example, to be able to explore an issue in depth and give people a really good insight that you know you just can't really get from news or even from current affairs. You can get a snapshot, but you know uh, that's why documentary really appeals to me. Right. Wow. So, so you're there. You just had a camera. Yes. Yeah. You just, you just had your own camera. You yeah. started shooting it. Um, and how do you, if you haven't done this before, how do you then put it together as a documentary? How do you decide like, w- like which scenes go where, or does it have a narrator? Does it not have a narrator? And how how does it look on screen? How did you learn all all of the, I suppose the craft of actually making a documentary? Well, I suppose I wasn't a great cameraman when I started filming. You know the. The, the carb story on the ground there and I kind of evolved over time you know I got better at it you make your mistakes you look back over the f- footage you learn pretty quick mm-hmm. and you learn little techniques because I couldn't afford a, a crew or anyone else it was just myself doing the picture and the sound right. um, and because of that it was just me with a camera and I knew a lot of the locals uh, they didn't see me as an outside TV crew so they just treated me as, ev- as anybody else so they, they acted completely naturally so it was like I was invisible. It wasn't even there. So the necessity of having to do everything myself and just being me allowed me that kind of access and and 
that openness of people even with the guards like the guards kind of knew me on first name basis as well like so oh, yeah. you know I got a thump off a guard with a baton once and that's <laughs> me after going joking and going oh didn't see you there <laughs> you know <laughs> like there was some heavy times but it was it was great crack too sometimes and it was great humour you know yeah yeah um, but like of course a very tragic story too mm. but y- you know you see the best and worst of people when they're thrown into that kind of a situation yeah um, but then you see I suppose I just followed what was in front of me and followed my instinct. There was certain characters, like this guy, the chief, they call him locally. And I can tell you his, his name is well-earned, a local crab fisherman oh, yeah. who, uh, who, who had a pose shell because they were bringing the pipe through his fishing grounds. Uh, and when most other fishermen I kind of opted for compensation, he still, you know, despite him and his, his son and his brothers and a few others being the only people to stay <clears throat> resisting shell, he drove his small 45-foot wooden crab boat up against the world's biggest pipeline vessel and, and navy vessels and everything uh, and just no fear you know and, yeah. and took them on uh, and it was characters like that or, or Maura Harrington who was um, another person there. she was a local uh, school teacher you know who's very kind of vociferous and very outspoken and, and let's say ideological or dogmatic in, in, in her ideals uh, and then you had Monica Muller a German who was, uh, who was the opposite who was very much you know, we we stay by the law. We follow them through the courts. Yeah. We get we 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 can take on shell in the courts and win. And then people like Willie Cardoff, who's you know, uh, just very genuine and honest, a, a farmer who, when shell came in with the pipeline, and Monica was trying to tell them, okay, leave them come in on your land, and we'll get them for aggravated trespass because the law on which shell were coming in on land was was very very, on very dodgy ground. Right. But of course, Willie. You know, his father and himself having basically reclaimed that land from the bog, it was a very emotional response. Says, Nobody's going to come in on my land and tell me what to do with my own land. Right. So you had all these different characters with different outlooks and, you know, different backgrounds and everything. And when it came to the edit, it, although we had loads of other people as well in it, these people just kind of told their own story. It, it just kind of evolved out of the edit. Yeah. Now, it wasn't an easy process. It was eight months in the edit suite with, right. with Nigel O'Regan, a great editor. Um but the story kind of told itself and at the start we'd voice over scripted out to link all the pieces together but the more we edited the more we kind of shaped it down and looked back through the rushes for other bits and pieces the more actually it evolved that it, all the story was there there was no need for voiceover so it kind of came together like a film naturally mm. and with the kind of characters you know coincidentally that you'd want in a film and the contrasts in characters you know the hero the anti-hero and that kind of a climax um and a lot of that kind of stuff happens in the edit. It's, it's in the edit where stuff happens that you don't really plan. And it's very hard to plan in documentary because for something like this where you're kind of flying the wall, if you try and plan too much, you might cut yourself out of something else. Mm. Because mo- like in, in this kind of documentary, the best stuff and the most important stuff is stuff you just stumble across. You don't plan. So if you're planning something, setting up something, you'd miss this other thing that's going on behind your back. Right. Like I was down in Monica Muller, the German's house, one day drinking tea, and all of a sudden she gets a phone call from her from a neighbour, and she spotted Shell out out on the bog surveying the bog. Now she got a court order against Shell for going on the commonage, which is the the whole community owns different parts of the bog, but they kind of own it together. And just pure coincidence, I was sitting in her house and this happened. You know, so I just followed her up and we filmed and. It was the first time that actually Shell had come onto this and she'd confronted them. Uh, and being able to get that access and to get those kind of scenes, not having to be being told them in retrospect, mm. actually experiencing them and allowing the viewer to experience it from my perspective was fantastic, you know. So it was a film that that was evolving in front of the camera as opposed to us telling somebody what happened, which really brought the audience into the action. Mm and allow them to experience actually what was going on down here in this small little remote corner of Ireland. Mm. When you see, um, when you're, you're, you're basically, you're telling, I suppose, a David versus Goliath kind of story, the, 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 the small community versus the huge corporations. And then when you see an image like the, the chief in his little boat going out against the big, huge pipeline vessel, is that just like a dream then for a documentary maker? Is that like, you know, is this kind of metaphorical image that you can use? In hindsight, it is. Yeah. And, and people tell you, wow, like that, that's just, you know, incredible. At the time, I didn't really realize it. I mean, I was so concerned with, I used to get very seasick oh, with, right. with actually not throwing up overboard <laughs> and keeping the camera running. Because the guard, when the guards boarded, like, we're all in the wheelhouse together. And 
when I'm in the wheelhouse for about five or ten minutes, I've got to go out the back and just kind of look at the land for a while and let my head settle. But the guards boarded the, the chief's boat anyway, and, and there's this great conversation over and back where the guard is trying to, lay, trying to tell the chief uh, that he's in the wrong and he has to move, and he wants to, him to move without, without uh, having to arrest him because they don't want to arrest him. And the chief knows the law, like, very clever. And the chief is kind of going back to the guard, telling the guard back that he that the law's on his side. He's got a constitutional right to be there. His crab pots were there before Shell's pipeline. Mm. And Shell have no compulsory powers uh, to lay a pipe on his crab pots and damage him. So you had this conversation over and back, really fascinating. Uh, and in the middle of it, I know I'm getting great stuff, but I know that my stomach is starting to get a bit queasy because <laughs> when, you're, when you're inside in a boat and it's rolling over and back, uh-huh. uh, you start to feel really sick. So I'm just focused on it. Don't get sick, don't get sick. Because I'm right on the guard's shoulder, basically, in this tiny little wheelhouse. <laughs> Trying not to get sick on him, you know? Right. So it was only really when all this madness was over, like that you kind of look back on things and you start putting it together in the edit and you kind of go, wow, that was so, so, so lucky to be there, mm-hmm. you know, in that situation. Because usually you only film that kind of stuff from the land from very far away and you interview somebody afterwards and they tell you what happened. But to be in the middle of that yeah. was just extraordinary. Um Probably didn't really realise it too much at the time, but looking back, yeah, it was pretty cool. You've kind of thrown yourself into a mad career for someone who gets uh, seasick. <laughs> so you obviously did you did the filming as well on on Atlantic, didn't you? Yeah. So you're on yeah. a lot. Of, you're on a lot of boats again. Yeah, again, it wasn't intentional. Um, <laughs> I'm probably the worst person to put in a boat. Like, yeah. like even when the do you know when the engine turns on in the boat, yeah. when I sit on the pier, yeah. I start to feel sick. Oh yeah, just yeah. the sound of the engine, the smell of the diesel. Yeah, I'm the same as that. I I, I can't handle it at all. No, I'm, I'm like even on the big ferries when people are fine, I'm I'm lying on the ground trying to like just trying not to get sick. There's yeah. nothing worse. There's no pain that's worse than it. It's like someone getting your brain like a jade lot and squeezing it out. <laughs> it's and 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 there's no escape from it. Yeah. Do you take sea legs? Or does it work? Yeah, I had to try everything. Actually, yeah. the best I got was antihistamines. Oh right, the doctor okay. that worked the best. Right. Um, but you know, after a day or two at sea, you kind of get used to it. Right. But you're a week back on the land and you're back to square one, you know. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, because of this, the reason, see, the, I, I, I did this documentary, not because I wanted to do another big doc, but because in the pipe, I'd also filmed a lot of the political stuff, the mm-hmm. giveaway of the oil and gas mm-hmm. and, and the political interviews and all that kind of stuff. But as we started editing the pipe, it became very, very obvious that the real power of the story in the pipe was the local story. Mm-hmm. And when we went to go into national politics and go into oil industry stuff, it took us away from the heart of the story, which was locally. Right. Uh, so I had to make a decision in the edit to kind of to drop all the political stuff for now and just focus on the local perspective. And I think that was one of the advantages of the film. That's why you could travel. You could bring this film anywhere around the world and people could look at it, not as an Irish story, but just a story of a community anywhere mm-hmm. uh, fighting a big, aggressive multinational government. So in Atlantic, I'd kind of unfinished business. I want to tell the story of the Irish natural resources, specifically mm. the oil and gas, and what had happened to it. Mm. Um, and as I started to go back over the old footage and then start filming more, I started to go on boats again, of course, with fishermen because all this oil exploration and stuff was happening offshore. And as I started spending more time with fishermen, of course, this parallel stor- story emerged that, okay, we may have given away our oil and gas resources, and mo- it's mostly potential resources, but there was, but the fishing resource is probably even even bigger scandal, because we can see how much fishing we've given away. We can mm-hmm. see in front of our very eyes the billions we've given away to you know the Dutch and the Germans and the Spanish and the French. We can see them landing it on super trawlers on the continent, uh, and it emerged that you couldn't tell one story without the other. That this was more of a, a there was a it was more of a political culture that had given away these resources. Mm. That it was more about our state's attitude to our ocean resources, to our fishing co- communities. It mm. didn't really matter what resource, whether fishing, seaweed, oil and gas. Uh, this was a giveaway of our oceans as opposed to a giveaway of one particular industry or resource. Mm. Um, so th- so what the fishing helped me to do as well, because the oil and gas story is very intangible, if these deals made back by Ray Burke and Bertie Heron back in the 80s and 90s, which they kind of happened behind closed doors, you know, uh, under circumstances that we'd say they were probably too close to the oil companies but you can't say you know you, we don't know whether whether there was corruption involved we don't know whether it was stupidity we don't know whether it was good logic um, but when you look at the fishing you can 
and most of the oil and gas is still in the ground and hasn't been discovered. Mm. Uh, there are little bits that have. But when you look at the fishing, you can see that you can see what we gave away under what circumstances. Mm-hmm. And you can put a number on it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can put number of billions on what's taken out of Irish waters every year. You can see fishermen, their boats tied to the pier or in court. And you can you can see and talk to, you know, uh, foreign fishermen who are sometimes kind of embarrassed that, that they have it so good in Irish waters. Mm. Um, so it's the story started to expand, you know, went from oil and gas to oil and fishing. And then I, want, I needed to get kind of a context because I didn't want to keep it in Ireland because it was hard to know were we doing the right thing or the wrong thing or was it just my perspective. So then I went to Newfoundland and I went to Norway and see how they did things. And and their, their um, the way they manage their resources, but also the way they view their ocean, the way they view their fishing community was much, much different. They say the political attitude and the attitude of their state towards the ocean was much, much different. And that determined a lot of what happened to their resources and to their, uh, off their coasts and consequently to their fishing communities. Mm. Yeah, so, so you were... You were already making the Atlantic before mm-hmm. you decided to go to Newfoundland and Norway, or yeah, oh right, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Well, I was kind of there was no point at which I started. I suppose I never really finished uh, that part from the end of the pipe. Oh, okay, I kind of carried it on. I yeah, meant to I do maybe a half hour dock for TV or something. But uh, then when I got into the fishing, of course, I started looking at Norway and at Newfoundland. Right, I looked at Newfoundland probably because for two reasons. Because the, a lot of the communities along the south shore of Newfoundland are very Irish. Mm. You go over there and you stand on a pier uh, in the likes of Renews where I filmed and it's like being in County Watford. Yeah, yeah. You know, like fella come, fella talking to you in the pier like, how are you doing, boy? Yeah. You're going to do a bit of cod fishing. How are you, boy? <laughs> yeah. And like, when did you get over? And and he's there when hey, I'm... 200 gen- years ago. Six generations here, boy. You know, since the early 1800s. It's amazing, like. Yeah. And, and there's, one, there's the Cain family yeah. who are... Uh, who feature in the documentary and we follow that That's through the, Charlie the, the father, father and the two sons yeah yeah, yeah. and and the father you know cod fishermen they the Canadian government handed over control of the fishing resource on the Grand Banks mm. which was the, the most incredible rich fisheries probably in the world the cod of the Grand Banks was they, they said you could walk across the Grand, Grand Banks on the backs of cod they were so thick um, but the unthinkable happened they just kept giving away quota to other countries and other other fishing companies, and and the super trawlers cleaned out the cod fishery. Mm. So overnight in 1992, the government says, "Right lads, no more fish on the Grand Banks. The, the cod has collapsed." So you can imagine for fishing communities up and down the, the province who had known nothing but cod fishing, their livelihoods just disappeared, evaporated overnight, mm. um, and those communities just just imploded, you know. Mm. And it's it's that it's you can see that in the documentary, you know, it's the, that raw anger, that despair. And then how they picked themselves up, how when they found oil on the Grand Banks, how although the Canadian government goes, right, that's ours, lads, yoink, we'll give you, you know, a few crumbs of it. The Canadian Premier stands up, or that's the Canadian, the, the Newfoundland Premier, mm. Danny Williams, yeah. kind of an Irishy kind of a fella, <laughs> stands up anyway. And uh, he says, no, he says, you're not getting this, not in this thing, we're going to learn from our mistakes. And he actually took down the f- Canadian flag, small government buildings, yeah. threatening to secede from Canada. Uh, you know, he had the balls to do that. Like, um, and they actually won huge concessions. You know, and that's what built the province back up. It meant that, you know, young lads could come back to their villages. They'd work on the rigs two weeks on, two weeks off. Mm. Uh, so they learned their lessons, which in Ireland we don't seem to do. We keep making the same mistakes over and over again. Yeah, um, that that guy uh, was his name, Danny Williams. Was I suppose similar to the um, the our Justin Keating? Yes. But then, unfortunately, he was out of office next term. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And Ray Burke came in, who just seems like like the bad guy. He just comes in like the villain in the whole thing. Um, <laughs> that was not intentional. Yeah, <laughs> but but he does. He even because he he then he then is caught for corruption. He's actually caught for it, isn't he? He or was tax he was jailed for tax fraud, and he right. was deemed to being corrupt by the Mahan Tribunal. Yeah. Uh, one or a few of those corruption findings have been withdrawn because of technicalities and challenges but some still stand Yeah. Uh, so he was deemed to be corrupt and he was jailed for tax fraud at a time when he was giving away you know giving huge concessions to the oil and gas companies yeah. you know, to the effect that the, the Carib field 
mm. which is because of that deal, uh, will pay little or no tax to the Irish state, which is incredible for an oil and gas field. I just, I don't even understand that. Like, he comes in and changes that. Like, uh, Justin Keating had set it up quite well, uh, based on the Norwegian model, mm. uh, 50% tax yeah. and, um, what was it, like t- 13%? Um, he had a royalty. Royalties, yeah. Yeah, 12.5% royalties, I think. Yeah. And that seems not only like a good, a good deal for Ireland, it mm. just seemed logical. Yeah. Uh, so then Ray Burke comes in and, and the new government and they changed that and I, I didn't even understand the point like so the Irish government doesn't get the money or the oil or gas or or anything like what what are they getting yeah there's what? no control over the resource there's no renov- there's very little revenue I mean their, their reasoning was we need to give them such low conditions that they'll come in and explore um, right oh so price we hadn't of oil found was it very yet. low so they didn't well, want to go looking themselves. We we had found. I mean, the Carib field was known about back then. Right. It hadn't been drilled. It was it was surveyed, um, and we had known there was big potential. Justin Keating took the view, if the if we have to give away conditions to the oil companies that are so are so lax that we won't get anything back, well, it's as well leave it in the ground until a certain time comes, that it's in the oil company's interest and our interest. Yeah. To do a deal, kind of like the fifty fifty deal that Norway have. So he was looking at the long term. He wasn't just looking at the five years that he'd be in government. Um, he could say, look, if we can't benefit out of it, well, there's no point just giving it away for a few crumbs, a few shiny beads. Mm. If we can't benefit maybe two generations, maybe three generations time, let's look at the long term picture. Let's look at all our resources as a package and manage them as resources. Because once you take oil and gas out of the ground, it's gone. Like There's no going back. Mm. Um and he was he was very isolated, you know. He had very little political support, um, even within his own party. And it wasn't just Ray Burke; it was you know Des O'Malley. It was successive governments chipped away at his, at his terms. Um, but the big changes were under Ray Burke and Bertie O'Hearn when they not only hand you know not only handed over the control of the resource, um, but also they tied the hands of government to actually, if there was big fines, to make to make those changes retrospective mm. like we can't change the tax now on carob in the morning if we want as a state mm. that tax is going to stay till the lifetime of the field and whatever tax they would pay at 25% all of that will be written off so Jeez. yeah I, I'm, I'm, I'm nodding here in, uh, in disgust <laughs> and, which is no <laughs> good the Norwegians on the Norwegians will do well out of carob on the plus side Oh great! Every cloud is a silver lining. <laughs> They'll do well. How come the hell? How will they do a lot of corrup? Uh, or Statoil there? Statoil are a shareholder. Yeah, Statoil oh, okay. have about twenty five percent or something in corrup. Right. Um, and yeah, they're, they're kind of I I don't know they they kind of get into it early. Looked like a good thing, but right. it's caused them nothing but headwreck and really bad reputational damage for them as well. Remember, you had Shell and Statoil petrol stations in Ireland. Yeah, yeah. They're gone because of corrup and the controversy. The uh, their margins just dropped through the floor and. Oh, okay. What, what they got an offer from Topaz or a few Irish business people I think including Dennis O'Brien and they were so glad to get an offer they they, they offloaded them all like a fire sale but you see what the Irish guys who were buying it as Topaz they realised the value of these petrol stations as real estate mm. so all these petrol stations in towns and cities they just closed down and sold for property built apartments on them made mm. a killing you know wow. so that's Ireland. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's Irish government. That's that's the big problem, isn't it? Really, just being so short-sighted. Short-sightedness, definitely. Yeah. Always the yeah. problem. Yeah. So Whereas in in Norway, like, yeah. there's definitely uh, they're not not perfect, but there's much more transparency in the political system. There's a much greater tradition, I think, of acting in the public interest and not acting for one sector or one tribe. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know in Ireland have we ever really acted as a country. Yeah. You know, like back when. St. Patrick came to Ireland there was 200 different kingdoms little countries in Ireland and and we've always acted like that be it FOSS or you know the unions or the political parties we, we kind of look after our own little group you know yeah. and we kind of build a wall yeah, around yeah. them it's a, it's, we're just way overrepresented aren't we and every every politician's looking after his little town and yeah and it's just, is, is it the system or is it is it ourselves is it our, like yeah. they say you get the politicians you deserve Right. You know, we vote for these politicians and That's then we true. give out about them when something yeah. happens, you know. So there's a deeper cultural thing there. Is it is it a problem with who 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 runs for office? Like there's no there's not a, there isn't 144 great ones, you know, out there that we can vote for. Is that a problem like? Um 
I don't know. I mean, we certainly have had good politicians in the past. Yeah, we've had a smattering the, of them. Yeah, <laughs> but on the main, I, I don't think we do get... I, I think the system is very much inclined towards someone working their way up through the local politics system, yeah. you know, and patronage at local level and getting up to nearly a sense of entitlement that they've done their time at lo- local politics and then the they're... model. Yeah, well, actually... <laughs> It's I I'd say it's more the Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil model. Mm. I mean I think the Healy Rays have have they've definitely fought and deserve and and fought for their vote. I remember, uh, oh it's about a good long time ago. It was more than ten years ago. I was filming on this series called Celebrities Go Wild, <laughs> and it was Dahi O'Shea. I remember Katie French the model and um and Michael Healy Ray was on it. Mm-hmm. And I swear to God I'd never seen as as a hard worker like Michael Healy Ray. Like when the rest of them would be in the tents, he'd be up at six o'clock out gathering wood for the fire. Really? I just, yeah, yeah. You know, really hard worker, very clever. You right. know, people underestimate him. But anyway, look, just, I digress. Yeah. But coming <laughs> to the political, yeah, yeah. I, it's probably very hard for people to come in from outside the party model into politics in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and definitely there's no system really. Well, I know you can. it's it's possible, but, you know, that somebody can come in who hasn't worked their way up uh-huh. to become a minister. Yeah. Bring in someone from industry or someone from uh, outside completely. And you look at Canada, if you look at all their ministers, yeah. they're so well qualified in, in, in different sectors of of the the economy and, and the social economy and the country. Very reflective. Whereas for us, it's, you know, you don't really have to be qualified to be a minister. It's yeah. more on what you're entitled to. I'm entitled yeah. to a ministerial yeah, seat. Yeah. You're senior, That's a big so problem. You get something, yeah. mm. And I think we, we do we do have a challenge in terms of uh, in inviting in or having people from a lot of different parts of, of Irish society uh, in Irish politics. Uh, the system very much encourages that sort of local, which is good to, in a way, but it, it encourages the local councils, mm. you know, people to become the national politicians. And and did you feel that kind of difference when you were in Norway? Did you feel like the people are happier, they're not so annoyed at the government, or if something goes really wrong, they have the power to kind of change it? I think there's a much greater ownership mm. by Norwegian people of their politicians. Right. Like we, we don't necessarily feel that we have ownership over our politicians. We yeah. feel we vote and they get in and we go, oh, those bastards, you know. <laughs> and then we kind of give out about them for the next five years. <laughs> Whereas the Norwegians go kind of, okay, he's representing me. He's he's our civil servant. Mm-hmm. And if we don't like what they're doing, we need to let them know. We need to come together and let them know so they can change the laws or represent on our behalf. So the people hold their politicians to account more. We're just like, like you wake Irish people get a bad dinner in a restaurant. They just give out under their breath and, yeah. and moan and complain about it a lot. Yeah. Instead of actually, you know, saying it to the waitress and, and getting a replacement. Yeah. Uh, Norwegians are much quicker to take action and Newfoundlanders to a point as well. Um, and it's it's reflected, I think, in the Norwegian uh, so how the politicians um, represent them and that could be going back into the past into the, their, their culture I'm not sure mm. um, but politics does work very well in Norway yeah. and it's local All politics the Scandinavian countries seems, seem to do it pretty well yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a great transparency you know yeah. and it's very impressive in these countries like in, in Norway people there's not as great a gap between you know rich and poor and people who are fairly wealthy they don't go in for big kind of trophy houses they're quite happy actually to live in a very modest house, you know. Mm. They they don't have that outward need to express that say their wealth if they're wealthy. Mm. It's very it's it's impressive, you know. But mm. it's it's a it's quite a fascinating country uh, and a really interesting place. Right. I filmed with a, a cod fisherman up in the Arctic called Bjorn or Nikolaisen. Right. And um, you know he'd have his own thoughts on the oil industry and what the oil industry is doing to the cod. He's the main fella in fisheries. in Atlantic. Yes. The mm. main Norwegian guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, you know, um, so yeah, I spent spent a few weeks up and on and off, over and back, mm. uh, and it's really cool to see how the Norwegian fisheries work, mm. because in Norway they look after their small boats, their middle-sized boats, their big boats. Local fishermen can, you know, sell fish locally, and he dries the fish. It's called clipfisk, where you dry the fish on these big racks yes, yeah, during yeah. the winter. It's a shot in the film on these. Yeah. It's like Game of Thrones. These big timber racks <laughs> that go on stretch on for ages. Yeah. yeah. And then, and then they sell it and it's really dry and you can chew it or you can put it back into water and it expands back out again. Okay. Like when you dry cod, it, it goes down to 10% of its weight. That's right. how the Vikings were able to conquer half of Europe by their boats. 
uh, that because they took abundant on so much. light food source. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. You could travel for months uh-huh. with a boat full of food. Oh, um, didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's interesting. So uh, actually, Bjorner is coming to the the launch in the IFI. He's going to bring a bit of Klepfisk. Oh, cool. We'll pack his bags with it. When is the launch? Uh, the 29th, this Friday. 29th of April. Yeah, yeah. All right. I don't know, is this going out before? Or we'll, yeah, we'll have it out before that. Oh, cool. 29th of April. Nice is, it, is it sold out? Uh, oh, no, it's not yet. Okay. And then the 30th, the Saturday night, will be in the eye in Galway. The 30th in the eye in Galway. Oh, yeah. That's a, great, that's a great cinema. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's brilliant. Yeah. They're yeah. really good for Canard House films as well. Yeah. So, um, on Bjorn, Bjorn is a fascinating guy. He's like a yeah, philosopher he was, as well. He was, yeah. He's really interesting. Uh, and yeah. and uh, I think they, like Bjorner, when they feel the government isn't acting in their interest, you know, they do get together and they make sure that the government knows they're not. And they look at political solutions instead of, you know, trying trying to be very uh, um, confrontational. Mm. They try and resolve things through politics. And and that we kind of follow that in the film. Yeah, I think that's something we're pretty bad at here. We, we, we're, we're very good at complaining and moaning. And not very good at, at doing something about it. Um, pretty much up until water charges when they were, when people yes. started campaigning against it and and, and marching. Yeah. And, and to me, water charges is, is the least of our worries, really. But yeah. Um, I suppose. But you saw it as well, like with the remember they tried to take the med, the was it the free travel off the old age pensioners? Oh yeah. Or was, was it the medical card? Was it? Yeah, it was. And back you over saw that, how yeah. many people they had on the street. Yeah. And how the government did a U-turn very quickly. Yeah, you know, that's right. People power is very, very effective. Oh, it yeah. works. Well, that's what democracy is. Like that's exactly that's what the government they're supposed to just represent us, aren't they? So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, just about the oceans. Um, so I was just thinking about this when I was watching Atlantic. Um, everybody was talking about you know our our water and and yeah. the, these kind of super toddlers coming in and our water and taking our cod. And I was just thinking, like, what? Why is it our water? Like, I know, say, okay, maybe a few miles off the coast, mm. but the further out you go, I, I, is is it is an ocean not kind of universal? It is, yes. And I suppose I have to explain the process of the film, and and my outlook when I started. Incidentally, our territorial waters mm-hmm. go out to generally about 200 miles off the coast you know, sovereign waters yeah right, okay. it's the international law of the sea sometimes they go further sometimes a little bit less depending but so w- sorry, so our so territorial waters is 90% of Irish territory is under sea right that's interesting so just to think about it in, in terms of right so we're an island which makes it easy to talk about this so 200 miles outside of our coast is mm. our water yeah but for example going off the East coast. East coast halfway so oh so we get half yeah oh I see okay yeah, yeah. it's a kind of halfway point if it's under 200 miles okay so there's there's a, a line that goes down through the middle of the ocean that's similar to the coasts of both countries yes basically yeah. oh, the right. fish don't see that no, <laughs> no they wouldn't no <laughs> but this is this is the point you're making when I started off this documentary it was about oil and then fish it was about what we get from it in, in kind of big revenue terms what control the government has over our fish our oil but as the documentary evolves, the first half kind of deals with the, the resource and the ownership of the resource and, mm-hmm. and, and the financial. But as the documentary evolved, I, the, the, I kind of, my perspective evolved and also the kind of international scene evolved as well. And what becomes more and more apparent is that actually, like you say, it doesn't really matter whether it's an Irish fish or a Norwegian fish or, or a, a Canadian fish mm. uh, because they, they, they swim from one to the other. Mm. And if you damage the ocean, even in one part of the ocean, that has an effect right across the ocean. Mm-hmm. Like if you overfish the Norwegian fish, well, like for example, our big mackerel fisheries, they're Norwegian fish when they start off up in the Arctic. <laughs> and in big massive shoals, they swim down. They start about September. And these big giant mackerel shoals swim down and they come down off the west coast of Ireland during the winter. And then off about March, off the southwest off Kerry and then they just disperse and they spawn um, and then they go back up again the cycle starts again so you see if we overfish or the Norwegians overfish it, it doesn't really matter we affect each other and that that is the message coming out of the, the documentary as well mm, yeah, that if we look after this, this ocean if we look after it together we respect it we don't just look to kind of smash and grab to, to get as much out of we can in the yeah. short term if we do that we're not hiding to nothing if we take our time if we just take what the ocean can sustain because we, we can take a certain amount from the ocean it'll replenish itself in terms of fishing uh, that this will sustain coastal communities and it'll sustain them very very well for for generations and generations 
on into the future. Yeah, the the the, the images of the of the super trawlers. I don't know. Were you on a, a big one on a, one of those huge factory ships? No, because there's there's obviously footage. They didn't of, invite me on. Did they not? No, no it's no. funny that. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's but there is footage of of how they work. Uh, yeah. You know, kind of freezing the fish and boxing them up and yeah. and the big huge nets. Yeah. And I haven't stopped thinking about that since I've seen it. Like those, the amount of fish in those nets, it's incredible. And just I know the ocean's a big place, but you do get that sense that we're going to run out of fish. Like we have the we have the lesson from Newfoundland. Yeah, that, that yeah, if exactly, we do yeah. hammer the stock like that, mm. uh, and if we don't properly regulate it, it'll only go one way. You know, I mean, it's a very vast ocean. There's a lot of fish in it. Um, but there is a there is a tipping point, yeah. and and where we are in that tipping point, we don't know. Yeah. Um, and I mean, like, well, the footage from the super trawler actually came from a, it came from a Dutch documentary maker, right? Who had filmed on board one of these super trawlers, making it a kind of an innocent enough documentary, but he'd actually filmed them high grading without realizing it. Right. <laughs> without them realizing, you know, where you you kind of separate out fish, right? Yeah. And yeah, even yeah. though fish are in quota and legal. You just throw them overboard and you put the net out again you take back in more valuable fish yeah. you're kind of sorting through them and taking the best as opposed to by law you should hold on to all of them even though some you get a lesser price than the others yeah. uh, and, I w- and then of course I managed very lucky to get the whistleblower from one of these trawlers mm. to tell me what was happening yeah that was really interesting as well Yeah, like the amount of thousands and thousands of tonnes of fish they were dumping even in a two week period overboard just because they weren't profitable enough is that, is that what happens when you, s- you know the way sometimes you see a picture of you know thousands and thousands of fish up on a on a, a beach they they mm. just they just wash up on a beach is that where they're coming from i wonder or i wouldn't think well, i wouldn't think so we say we probably too far offshore i'd say oh i suppose yeah yeah too far. i'd say the crabs and the gulls that they got them before then generally when you have a fish kill like that uh it's something like either happens close to shore or it's something chemical or something like that or right. warm very warm waters or something you know yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that the birds wouldn't be eating them for some reason right. but yeah it's it, it, something that happens closer to shore probably yeah. you have it on, on that scale if it happened out you know 10 miles out the fish be well dispersed yeah yeah, yeah. plus in those big trawlers they have often they, they mulch them up so they go back into the sea in a kind of a paste yeah it's yeah I mean if they're taking them in and then putting them back out while they're still alive wouldn't be so bad but they're actually dead when oh yeah once you land the fish he's He's toast. Yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I have to let you go now in a minute. Uh, it's been great talking. Uh, do you still have an interest? Just one more. Do you still have an interest in physics? I'm just wondering uh, because you, I that's do, what yes. you studied. Yeah, you know. I kind of, the, the documentary making kind of brought me back to science. Right. So I did theoretical physics here in Trinity and, well, across the road. Um, and then I'm doing, doing these documentaries, it's really good to have that uh, background in, in science because, you know, um, you can back up, like a lot of the stuff in the film, you're telling very emotive stories. You're trying to be as minimal as you can on facts. Mm-hmm. Just give enough to get the story across. But you need a lot of facts and a lot of reasoning to back up what you're putting in front of the audience. But for legal reasons, when you're questioned on it, uh, for other reasons too. So being able to kind of assess, let's say, scientific reports, you're not going to put in a scientific report into the documentary because, you know, <laughs> it'll, it'll people will just become a yawn fest. Mm. But you need to know all that stuff behind it. So having that confidence of having mm. the information, being able to interpret the information, like, for example, in the, in Atlantic, where we, we look at seismic blasting, yeah. where the oil explorers have these massive air explosions that go for hundreds of kilometers through the sea uh, and in order to, to, to find the right strata of rock where oil and gas might be. To, to be able to kind of read the reports and assessments and, and try and have your scientific argument behind, let's say, what's on film, mm. which doesn't get into that big detail is really important because there is a point where you're up against somebody who knows this stuff or you're up against some politician or someone in the industry or scientists where you need to know that information or else your argument will fall apart. Yeah. So definitely yeah, the science has been uh, it's been good to have behind me. You know, it gives me that kind of confidence to be able to argue what I'm trying to put across in the documentary stronger. Yeah. Once you have the scientific method you're pretty much you're, you're as you say confident. Yeah. Um, so what's next? Is it more documentaries or... Well, I need to draw breath now. We're la- I say we're launching this this doc on cinemas on the twenty ninth, which is this Friday, and uh, to try and get it out there, you know, really try hard to get it out there because a big point of this film is uh, it's not just to make a film; it's actually to inform Irish people yeah. of what's happening in our oceans, our coastal communities. Like we're an island; we don't realize it. We turn our backs on the sea, and I think if Irish people have more cognizance of the wealth, the 
how delicate our oceans are, how valuable our fishing communities are. But I think there's far they're far more likely that the the politicians and there's more there'll be more political will mm. to act on the issues that are happening on our coasts mm. because often it's been there's been an ignorance mm. of what's been happening at sea you know and a lack of political will to do anything about it um so i'm not really thinking now about oh god what's next yeah. what i'd love to do is you know showing the film around the country and be shown in different festivals and different mm. towns and villages you know to be able to kind of enjoy the west of ireland now for the summer yeah, yeah. you know be able to go work a bit go to, go to show the film um but be able to have, take the kids and go cycling and surfing and swimming and you know, really enjoy the summer. Really looking forward to that. Right. And you've got that uh, that website up, um, the interactive website. What's, yeah, what's the AtlanticStream dot com. Atlantic so we're all the time working on it and building it, and it'll build into a re- really good resource. Yeah, yeah. So it's early stages yet, but it's kind of fun. You know, we have the animations yeah, and it yeah. shows how the seismic blasting works. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So that's kind of kind of exciting because we want this to be uh, informative as well. You know, from all ages. Yeah, uh, and and we'll be keep building that as we're as we're showing the film and as we go along because it shouldn't just we don't we don't want to just launch the film and then it stops and then it's kind of right okay what next yeah the film has to do something you know and hopefully people can pick up on the message we put out there yeah uh, <clears throat> and kind of fight for coastal communities and for erosion I think it definitely will it's very informative and 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 absolutely well worth a watch and it kind of infuriating but also. It would make you. It would definitely make you think and want to and want to act. So uh, so well done. It's a great cool. film and congratulations. Thanks, uh, where where can people follow you or Twitter or Facebook or Twitter? Yeah, I'm rubbish at Twitter. I can't <laughs> leave it to someone else to do. We have a Twitter handle. I know that. I think it's Atlantic Film. Right. There's Atlantic Stream okay. on Twitter, and I think it's the hashtag Atlantic Film. Right. Uh, and then with Atlantic Stream on Facebook. I do the Facebook stuff. Okay. It's easy. So Atlantic Stream on Facebook if people want to follow. Yes, yeah. And yeah. Twitter then is Atlantic Stream too. And the launch is this Friday in the IFI, April 29th. Yeah. And, and then the we'll we'll, like After a lot of these launches and, and screenings, we'll have discussions as well uh, afterwards involving fishermen and conservationists, people oh, in the oil industry, politicians, journalists. Um, and... We have a screenings page too on Atlantic Stream uh, webpage, which has all the screenings around the country. So from cinemas, omniplexes, down to places like Tory Island. And if people want, they can get in touch with us and request a screening, screening, and right. bring a screening to their area. Will Brendan Gleeson be there? <laughs> I hope so. We've Actually, a lot I of never even asked you about Brendan Gleeson. Was he just a fan of the pipe? And um, well, I'd yeah, I'd sent him the rough cut for, right. for Atlantic, and he'd done a film in Newfoundland. This is where I, this is where the idea came to me, called the Grand Seduction. He played right. a Newfoundland fisherman. I oh, remember that film. Yeah, 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 he, yeah. He really got the accent down to it. Okay, you know? right. <laughs> and I looked, I was wow. And I sent him the rough cut, and he he loved it. He loved the fact that he loved it having Newfoundland because it's a place very close to his heart. Mm. And he loved the, how layered the dock was, and he loved how it wasn't kind of preachy. And when he came in to do the voiceover, he was like, right, I I don't want to take over in this way, you know. How do you want me to pitch the voiceover? Mm. Because it shouldn't be about me. It should be that I facilitate in any way I can. Mm. Um, and he 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 worked really hard on it. Like mm. you'd be thinking, okay, we'll get this voiceover done in a half a day. No. But like he was up in the studio eleven o'clock that night, rewriting bits of voiceover, re-recording, make sure it sounded right. You know that it they hit the right note, mm. all that kind of stuff. Very very passionate about it. And like again, not a really hard worker and. To have him behind it, not only because of the quality of his voice and his delivery and the gravity of that, you know, he's like mm. the voice of the ocean. Mm. But to have his name behind it gives me good credibility as well. Because yeah, as, as an independent filmmaker, you're often very isolated. People go, it's just that nutcase off there, you know, making these accusations. <laughs> and, you know, he has an agenda or baggage. But when Brendan puts his name behind it, you kind of go, all right, you know, if Brendan is going to put his name behind it, at least it's got a certain amount of credibility. Mm. And that's one thing that it does give me and that's why I'm really appreciative of him for that yeah that's it's it's nice to have him alright um, I think the film's got credibility he's very anyway sound. but yeah really sound yeah. <laughs> good believe yeah, you know? cool. like for a guy it's, it's great like for a guy who's you know such a kind of Hollywood star that he's so so down to work yeah uh, and so willing to kind of give his time like that yeah it's, it's great you know because like most people who are kind of celebrities they're very they they be a bit kind of cautious, you know, of getting into any way political or yeah, of course, yeah. you know, might yeah. might might offend anybody. Brendan just dove into it and said, "Right, I I believe in this. I'm going to do it," and that was it. Okay, to him. We'll have to get him on the podcast. Exactly. <laughs> well, listen, thanks, man, for coming in. It's been great talking to you. Thanks a million. 
So that was the Richie O'Donnell episode of the Head Stuff Podcast. Thanks a million for listening to that. I uh, hope you enjoyed our chat there and uh, go and watch the film. Um, as, you, as you heard there, he's, it, it's it's launching in the IFI and the I Cinema in Galway. Um, and I'm sure you'll be able to see it in, in lots of other places too. I'm going to put in the audio from the trailer uh, for the movie at the end of this uh, outro. So hang around to listen to that um, if you're interested. Um, it's narrated by Brendan Gleeson. Uh, so in, in in a way Brendan Gleeson is on the podcast um, so thanks again um, please if you enjoyed this and all our other podcasts and our articles on our website uh, give us a hand by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash headstuff um, and there's you can pledge different amounts per month and you get different awards uh, based on the amount that you pledge also subscribe to this podcast and if you haven't yet then please rate us and, and leave a comment on, on iTunes or wherever else you listen to your podcasts um, I'd like to thank Richie O'Donnell for joining me on the podcast this week and Glenn Hogarty for, for setting it up uh, thanks to Video Blue for the theme tune thanks to Mikey Fleming for the artwork um, and uh, keep an eye on Heads Up Tomorrow because the new episode of Juvenalia will be out and it's absolutely brilliant so Juvenilia tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. See ya. With the impacts of seismic blasting hidden beneath the waves and far offshore, oversight of these operations is weak and ineffective. Out of sight is out of mind. Every 10 seconds, each survey vessel delivers a pressure wave so powerful that it can travel for hundreds of kilometres through sensitive whale habitats and fishing grounds. And these are not the only ships threatening the marine environment. Like oil and gas, fishing has become an industry that knows no borders. As the Earth's demand for food increases, the potential for profit is enormous. Transnational fishing companies have grown rich and powerful building ever bigger boats, hunting night and day, seeking out stocks in every corner of the globe. With industrial efficiency, these super trawlers have joined the oil explorers in the scramble for the Atlantic's resources. For the fishermen who have lived modestly off the sea for generations, their livelihoods are vanishing before their eyes. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. 